Well, this morning, we continue in the Matthew Gospel, Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, Jesus asks a question, having been asked many questions, three of which we have seen in this particular dialogue. And obviously, the questions that have been asked of him is the continual question that humanity asks of Jesus. Remember, these questions and the centrality of the question is not confined to Jewish leadership. It is the central human question that every single human being must ask and must have answered. And that's this. Who are you? What is your authority? Are you God's agent? Are you literally the eternal, uncreated, unchangeable, immutable, omnipotent, etc., second person of the Trinity, having clothed yourself with human flesh, taken to yourself a human soul in the incarnation, taking to yourself the name of Jesus, who are you? What is your authority? Because every one of us, I just have a feeling, I'm not going to get to all the notes. Every one of us continually, as believers, walk in a world and walk embodied and encaged in flesh that continually and unrelentingly opposes and rejects, doesn't like the authority of the Son of God. Now, how do I know that? Let me ask you a question, and please raise your hand if this is true of you. My hand goes up first and foremost. How many of us have committed at least one sin this last week? And what is sin? The Apostle John calls sin what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness is rebellion against constituted, recognized authority. Isn't that correct? Am I, am I right around? Did they get that right? And every time we are tempted, we are tempted, whether it is from within our own lust, whether it is from the issues of the world, whether it is from an arrow, flaming dart from Satan. It doesn't matter the source of the temptation. What matters is the issue of the temptation. And every one of us who are tempted and every one of us are continually tempted. What is the temptation? 
The temptation can be summed up in a couple of different ways, one of which this morning, these are temptations that continually bombard us to say, by whose authority? By whose authority? And so this morning is the question of authority now comes into Jesus' question to the Pharisees. And as he asks the Pharisees this question, once again, we should never read the Word of God as pertaining to those people because the Word of God pertains to us equally as it ever did to anyone else. Amen? And so as he asks the Pharisees this particular question concerning his intrinsic, by his own nature, authority as the Son of God and his authority as the Son of God being given to him as the Son of Man through his obedience, he asks us the same question. So let's, as we go through this, remember that, that we're not talking about what Jesus talked to them about and told them about and always. It is we who are the persons to whom he is speaking this morning and every time we read the Word of God. Father, thank you. Minister to us. Challenge our hearts, Father. Father, would you awaken in us a deeper passion, understanding of your gracious, kindness, loving, merciful authority in our lives. Father, continually showing us and encouraging us and leading us and adjusting us to know through experience that obedience to you is the greatest welfare for us. Teach us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So verses 41 and the first part of verse 42 in Matthew chapter 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, remember, they had no answers for Jesus. They had kind of stopped their answers. And they were kind of, I think, collecting themselves. as it, it is as if they had been knocked to the ground with these answers from this man. Listen to this man. Listen to his wisdom. Who is this man? How can he answer like that? And they're kind of, kind of getting themselves back together, if you would, spiritually, collecting their senses. And they're getting themselves together. As they were doing that, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You see, why are they talking about the Christ? The word Christ is Christos, means anointed. The word anointed in the Hebrew, we get the word Messiah. Why are we talking about the Messiah? Why is this so critical? Because you see, what Jesus did in the temple has accentuated what he did in the temple 
what he did in the holy place of God's presence upon the earth. Remember the theology of the Old Testament. How many of you were Catholic background and you know that on the altar, at least you were taught this, is the very presence of God himself. Amen? And you would never dare to come before the altar of the church and go, you would say, oh, no, my goodness, why? <gasps> and so you would come in, and you would bow, and you would do the sign of the cross. Why? As homage, as worship, as acknowledgement, as honoring the presence of God on the altar behind the little curtain. Can you say amen? Do you remember this? And even today, as those who have been saved and who are no longer practicing Catholics, I doubt whether any of you would walk in a Catholic church without that feeling of what? Oh. So if you go to a, a mass for whatever reason, for a funeral, for a wedding, whatever it is, you're going to go in there even though you're not a practicing Catholic anymore, and it's kind of like, well, like, like, you know, wow, I remember those days, and I go in, and whoop, no, I don't have to do that, but, but it's just that feel. Do you get what I mean? Do you understand what I mean? Now, those of us who were never raised Catholic, we don't get that. We look there and say, it's just another altar, some gold up there, a couple of statues. That's all we think of, Jackie, because we weren't raised the other way. But for those of you who were raised with the presence of God on the altar, this is a different issue. Amen? And so, in Catholicism, who has the authority to go on to the altar and to perform the sacrifice of the Mass. Can anybody do it? Oh, I'll do it this morning. Let me get up there. Okay, here's the body of Christ, whatever. What would you think? Ah! Do, oh, you're getting the feeling of this. Julio, you got, you're getting the feeling of that? Like, oh, my heavens. And if someone else other than who? The priest does it. What is your question? Why is he doing this? Who gave him that authority? Where does he get that right? This is what's going on with the Pharisees. You see, we just don't get it. We don't make the connections into our own life. We disassociate it from reality of what we understand, and we don't understand. What's wrong with these people? Didn't Jesus walk on water? Didn't he heal people? Didn't he do all that? Yes. You know, okay, some kind of charlatan. But once he comes in to the temple of God and begins to touch the holy things of God, that is a major problem because he's not the high priest, AJ. And only the high priest, Johnny, has the authority to either establish or disestablish or decide anything about what happens in relation to temple activity and worship. Did you get that? You see, they knew, just like a good Catholic would know, that only the high priest or the priest, or God himself has the authority 
have anything substantively to do with the activities of the worship upon the altar. Is that correct? And they knew, Jim, that when this man, this mere man, this carpenter, this man from Nazareth, what's Nazareth? This man of the tribe of Judah, they knew he don't have no authority over here because he's not of the tribe of Levi, and not only of the tribe of Levi, but of the house and lineage of Aaron. Therefore, he has no authority to do what he's done, because only that man who descends is a descendant of Aaron. Remember the Aaronic priesthood. And these men still were, although in a kind of complicated way. Either that particular high priest or God himself is the only one who has that authority. It's the only one. That's what's going on. I know I've taken a little time with it, but I'm not so sure if we get it <clears throat> unless we do it this way, unless I spend the time doing it this way. And I want you to have not only the intellectual understanding and comprehension of it, but the feeling of it. Celeste, were you ever Catholic? Bob, were you ever who? Steve. You were Catholic one time? Never? Ron? Anybody Catholic? Do you get this? Does this make sense to you? Does it get deep into you? Do you get it? And so they were refusing to believe the scriptural evidence that Jesus was the Messiah who had been endued with divine authority. You see, for them and for maybe everybody else in Israel, the Messiah was a, if you would, political deliverer, another Moses who would come and break the yoke and bondage of Rome as Moses did in Egypt and would in some way free the people to be once again a self-governing nation. But Jesus, you see, wants to do something here. I want to make a connection for you, he says. I want to show you something. You're right about the deliverer, Messiah, expectation. But you've missed the major content or the central issue. The central issue is this. The Messiah is just not a mere man come to deliver. You see, because a mere man, the Messiah, would have had no authority to do what Jesus did in the temple. There was only one man who had ever been given that kind of authority by God, and that was Moses who had the authority to be used to deliver the nation and then had the authority to consecrate the priests and prescribe for the construction of the tabernacle because that authority had been given to him by God. Therefore, Moses was in the role of or acted as if he were king and priest. And those roles were indicative or foreshadowing or a picture of him who was to come, who would come from God, and who would be God's king, priest, Messiah, son. Do we see how this comes together? This is what's going on.
This is what's swirling about. You come into this temple acting as if you are Moses. And I guess they did reject him. And you know what? If this were not scriptural, they should have thrown him out. If it's not scriptural. They should have gotten rid of him, Mary, because he's a charlatan. If it is not scriptural. If, Tammy, he isn't who he is. They should have locked him up. So Jesus asks the question as to the heart of his messianic role and authority. Oh, look at the clock. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Oh, we're quick. We know it's David's son. Davidson. It's the son of David. We know that. We know that the Messiah is the son of David. Well, where do they get this? Where does the Bible say that the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David? Because, and why is Jesus asking this question? Well, you see, the son of David was a messianic title that was given as a result of God's promise to David where? It may be in your notes. I'm not sure if it is or not. 2 Samuel chapter 7, specifically what verses? Say it again. 12, 13, and you can go on to 14 or whatever. And the, and the word of God comes to David through the prophet. And David, the Lord says, look, I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build my house. I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to set over that house your son who will be great, and the rule of his kingdom shall never end. It will be an, a forever kingdom. Now, that was immediately fulfilled in the reign of Solomon. But again, the reign of Solomon was a picture of the exaltation of Jesus Christ who sits on the throne of God over Israel, his people, and then constructs the temple or constructs the house of God. That's what that's all about. And so we know that that's the one who shall be the great man, the Messiah. But he's just going to be another guy. See, so he's going to be great, Susan, but he's just going to be, what, a mere man, but a great man. Just like Solomon was, what, a mere man, but he was, what, Andy, a great man. He was an exalted man, but he was still a man and only a man. So Jesus is getting somewhere here. And these guys say, well, who's, who's the Messiah? Who's Christ's son? Son of David. Isn't it interesting how, listen to me, isn't it, in, listen, isn't it interesting how Jesus uses the Scripture to undo their lack of understanding to the Scripture when they hold the Scripture incorrectly? Do you notice he doesn't use worldly methods? He goes to the Scripture. If you want to convince someone of something, I use examples all the time. I use other illustrations all the time. 
but to leave out the centrality of the Scripture leaves out the power. Where do I get that? Hebrews 4.12. Just ask Phil Widener about power. Phil Widener's one of his favorite songs is what? There is power, power, power in the blood of the Lamb. Right, Phil? And then when he used to sing it, there is power, 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 power. How many? Lots of power. Lots of power. And so they rejected, however, yes, he is the son of David, but he's just another man. And they rejected any notion of this Messiah, even the son of David, as having divine authority to cleanse the temple. Even as the son of David, he has no authority because he's not a priest. He's not a priest. He doesn't meet any of the natural qualifications. Did you see here that? He didn't meet any of the natural qualifications. And what was it specifically? The main qualifications from the tribe of and to be the high priest, he had to be from the house of Aaron. Only the consecrated high priest had the divine authority to do what Jesus did. And you can look in Deuteronomy 8 and Leviticus 16 for that authority. See, but in cleansing the temple, Jesus was professing to be the divine authority as God's duly consecrated and appointed high priest. He was saying, I am not only the Messiah, but I am the Messiah priest. Where in the world did he ever get that from? Where, where's that from? That, that can't be biblical. He's a Messiah priest. Prove it. Prove it how? Not through what you do and say. Prove it through the Scriptures. Amen? The proof is in the Word, not what a man says or even what he does. Where's the proof? It's in the Scriptures. And what a man says and does may validate whether or not it is from the Scriptures. Does that make sense to you? Too many times as believers, well, that must be God because. Or he must be from God because he did Scriptures first. And so, where does it get this? Where does it come from? And as a result, they were opposing Jesus' messianic and priestly claims. I'm not going to go into this, but there's an adversary here. And the battle that is happening here is the battle against the glory of God that began when? When did the battle against the glory of God begin? Word of God, people. When? Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. You get a description of the adversary in verse 1, and then you get the attack of the adversary in verse 2. Hath God said, does he have the authority? Who is he that he should tell you? Don't you have some freedom on you? Can't you decide for yourself? Don't you have free will? 
Isn't it okay for you to make a decision? And then ask God to back it up? That's where the battle begins. You see, this is the cosmic battle that began in Genesis chapter 3. This is the cosmic battle that occurred in Exodus. This is the cosmic battle that occurs in Joshua crossing the Red, I mean, the, the uh, Jordan and going into battle. This is the battle, the cosmic battle. This is the cosmic battle on Mount Carmel with Elijah, remember? In 1 Kings 18, do, I mean 17, do you remember that? This is the cosmic battle of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter, Luke chapter 2, where the birth of Jesus is opposed by Herod. This is the cosmic battle which occurs in Matthew 4 or Luke 4 with Jesus being confronted by the enemy in the wilderness. This is the cosmic battle that has begun in Genesis chapter 3 and continues regularly, unrelentingly through the malevolence of an enemy who will not ever give in or stop or do anything until he's chained and thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 19. That's when the cosmic battle is over in that sense, in our understanding. But the cosmic battle, all of it culminates where? Don't get it wrong. The cosmic battle, all of this cosmic battle that has begun and has been waged all those years and will be waged in the future, all of it is brought together, and the great cosmic battle occurs in another garden. The first in the Garden of Eden and the continual result of that, and then God collects it all and brings his second Adam back into the Garden of Gethsemane. And where the first man failed in the first garden, the second man succeeds and wins the victory because not my will but your will. Yours is the authority, God. And that's where it's won. Then it's paid for at the cross. The battle is in the garden. The payment is at the cross. Don't get it wrong. Jesus is not battling Satan at the cross. There's all kind of false teaching out there. St. Corinthians 521 says, for he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And those false teachers take that and say that for Jesus to become sin means that he became literally infected with and a consumed with and a sinner in himself. That's not the picture. Jesus is fulfilling the picture of the sin-bearing lamb of Leviticus 16 whose throat is cut and whose blood is shed and whose blood is put on the altar of God by the high priest. Remember the holy of holies. And then because of that reparation, <clears throat> payment has been made. Payment is not made to Satan. This is not about Satan wrestling Jesus. This is about 
God himself coming in the flesh and taking upon himself the very payment that God requires. There is no wrestling against Satan here at the cross. It's a payment that God requires. And there is no such thing as Jesus being attacked and held in hell for three days until he can come out again. That's a lie. Oh, what happens in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he descends into the lower parts? Well, that may be for another day. But you see, the Son of God does not go into hell and is trampled on by Satan and is held down until God says, finally, I'll let him loose, and now my son will be the first to be born again. That's not right. That's false teaching. It's called JDS, Jesus died spiritually. If there is a teacher that you know who teaches that kind of a thing, may I say very sweetly, I'm not so sure. I not say don't. What I say, Gwen, I'm not sure whether I would listen to anything else because at such a fundamental basis, they have it wrong. And when you get it wrong at such a fundamental basis, that wrongness permeates everything else. It's not that I can't be wrong. Of course I can be wrong. But I don't want to be wrong fundamentally. Does that make sense to you? I want to be wrong in the ancillary, the, the side issues. But I don't want to be wrong about the atonement. I don't want to be wrong, wrong about the death. I don't want to be wrong about the resurrection. I don't want to be wrong about the exaltation. I don't want to be wrong about the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I don't want to be wrong about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life, amen, and the future coming. I don't want to be wrong in those areas. Those are the basics. 1 Corinthians 15, the first three at least, but you can go on to 5 and 6 because it collects a lot of other people in it. And Jesus says, let me, give me a moment, let me get some water. This microphone's made me shout. Okay. The Christ is the son of David, right? Okay, great. Thank you. Jesus said to them, well, okay then how is it that David in the Spirit, you see, why did he put in the Spirit? Flo, why did he put in the Spirit? Because Jesus is accentuating that what David says is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you get it? He's making sure that when you read what Jesus, uh, David says in Psalm 110, in those first two verses, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit who gives David this revelation rather than saying, well, what did David say? And someone could say, well, Janine, David was wrong. But once he puts in the Spirit, Jesus is doing what? Nailing down the argument, right, Phil? He's nailing it down. He's getting them to sign on that dotted line, isn't he? And so he says that. Why did David say by the Spirit, Why does David call him by the Spirit? Lord. Calls whom Lord? His son, Lord. 
if the Christ is the son of David, yeah, he is, he is. Then why does he call his son Lord? Adonai. It means one who is superior. Now, who's superior to King David on earth? Who, who, which one? Who's superior to King David on earth in a man, as a mere man? Who? Is there anyone superior to this king on earth? Can you answer me that? Josh, what do you say? Justin. Jason. I only married him and everything else. And forget it. You can forget it. Jay. Who's superior to King David on earth? As a natural man, what man is superior to David on earth? Can't hear you. On earth, that then, at that moment. Moses dead. He can't be David's son. You got to go back and reread Exodus. It comes, you know, before. <laughs> so what is he asking? Then if your son correctly, because of the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13, and 14, and there, if your son is the Messiah, which you're correct, then how in the world does David call him Lord? What do you mean? <laughs> you ever can't answer a question, you say, what do you mean? Do you see what happens? Do you see what Jesus is doing? We want to see what Jesus is doing here this morning. Actually, he's not doing it this morning. Well, maybe he is, but he's doing as we read this this morning. Where am I? Oh, here I am. Then he, he, he quotes what David says. Then Yahweh, your Bible may say the Lord, is the personal, revelatory, self-existent name of God. This is the name of our God. His name is Yahweh. Oh, there's just so much to say about that. But it is a declaration that he is self-existent absolutely other than completely, what word don't want, contained within himself, needing nothing outside of himself. This is the great revelation that is given to Moses, remember, in the bush that does not burn. To show in the burning bush, in the burning bush, I suppose I just had to say it quickly. The burning bush, do you remember that? What was so significant of the burning bush? It was that the fire was not dependent upon the bush for its energy. Yet the fire or the flame was absolutely independent of the bush. And so when God is explaining who he is, he gives them a <clears throat> basic physical manifestation to show, you want to know who I am when I say I am? Look at that, and look at that flame, and to see that flame is not dependent upon that bush. I have just set the eternal flame of my presence in that bush to show you that I am the eternal one, the great I am. Amen? <clears throat> it's nothing about the bush, essentially. And that same flame dwells in us. We are now God's unburning bushes. We're not being consumed in that way. Do you get it? And then Yahweh says to my Lord, who, who's his Lord? His son. 
Then Yahweh says to my son, essentially, you see what it is, my Lord, Adonai. And look at this. You have God, Yahweh, speaking to Adonai, who is David's Lord. And when he says, my Lord, David means God because God is David's Lord. Have you read any of the Psalms? Phil, do you know anything about the Psalms at all? How many times has God, David uh, uh, affirmed that God is the Lord? Over and over and over and over again. So when David says, my Lord, he is speaking only about one person. He is speaking about the great Elohim, Yahweh. But then you have Yahweh speaking to Adonai. Now, if God was only one person, God is speaking to himself. But there are two persons involved here, two divine persons. Do you see something of the Trinity here? And he tells this Lord, this David's son, this Messiah, this Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, in this psalm, the twin offices of king and high priest are united. We're not going to go into verse 4, but if you go down to verse 4, in the original Psalm 110, by the way, this psalm is used, I think I'm right on this, more than any other messianic psalm in the New Testament. This is the most important and basic messianic psalm of the Old, of the, uh, Old Testament being used in the New to validate and to substantiate and to scripturalize the person and work of Christ. So the first three verses, what? He's the eternal son. He's the divine son as Messiah. But then he's also, what does it say in verse 4? To this Adonai, to this son of David, the Lord says, Yahweh says, I will make you a what? Does somebody see verse 4 in 110 of Psalm? Somebody turn there. I will make you what? A priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here's Yahweh himself saying that this Messiah, this son of David, who will rule. You see that sit, put all your enemies? Sit means what? What does sit mean? Sit at the right hand of God means that everything necessary for the Messiah's purpose and ministry has been completed. That's what Hebrews 9 says. He sat down. And so this is an indication that there is no longer any more necessity for the, uh, the, uh, the sacrificial system because some way the Messiah has completed it all in reference to God's purpose. He sits because there's no seat, remember, in the temple. And the priest cannot sit because the work is never finished. You read Hebrews 9 and 10, you'll see that. But this one sits. And not only he sits as Messiah, but he's then designated as a priest by God. Where do we first see Melchizedek? In Genesis 14. We won't go into Melchizedek. But he is a king, the king of Salem, and he's also the priest of El Elyon, the priest of God Almighty. Some of you saw the movie? So here we have in this one psalm, <clears throat> The two roles coming together. In the first three verses, you're the king. The Messiah is the king. And also, the son of David is not only the king, but he's also the priest. And based on that, as his scriptural authority, Jesus says, I cleanse the temple. 
Because in cleansing the temple, I'm showing you that I am he who was prophesied in Psalm 110. Do you get it? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Chris, they're caught. They are caught by the word of God's truth. They're caught. Look at the last verse. 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This shut their scriptural mouths. And it didn't shut their opposition, but it did shut them from publicly coming to him and questioning him and confronting him. And in the next three chapters, 23, 4, and 5, we will see what is called basically the fifth or the final Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes people say it's not 23, it's only 4 and 5, but you know, whatever. And this, the, this long discourse from the beginning of 23 to the end of 23, 4, 5, 5, Jesus will begin to give the great discourse that so many discuss and argue about, especially the signs of of his return. So that's what we have heading up. If you haven't signed the uh, sign-in sheet, please do so. I don't want to send you a letter because I can't remember and then uh, whatever. So please do that. It really does help me. And also name tag. So thank you for being here. See you next week.